Hello everyone, my name is Justin Crowley. And I'm Mike Smith. And this is The Murder Project. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 55 of The Murder Project. We're glad to be back and talking to you guys. In this episode, we're going to be doing a debrief on the Railroad Killer, also known as Angel Monterino Resendez, as well as about 20 other aliases, which we will get into as the episode goes. If you're new to The Murder Project, The Debrief is an episode where I sit down with my good friend and former police officer, Mike Smith, to discuss cases further. In The Debrief, we discuss cases from both sides of the aisle, theories that we might have, and anything that we think needs a second look. The Debrief is an unscripted and off-the-cuff commentary about the cases that we are currently covering. The hope of The Debrief is to break the cases down further, but in a relaxed environment with the true crime that we love and also some laughter. So let's get the episode started. Mike Smith in the house. Yo, yo. What's going on, my man? Oh, man. Just been just getting so crammed at work. Hard work, clean living. That's, That's what, what they, they say. say. Yeah. 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 <laughs> dirty, say. Ha- dirty hands and a clean soul. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. We, both of us have been. That's uh, Mike put out a post on the, on the old interwebs the other day. So if you're not on any of our social media platforms, you should go do it. Yeah, please join us. And that way you can hear, like, if we got something coming up or we didn't get a chance to record an episode, Mike and I have been putting in them 12, 14-hour days, like, mm-hmm. daily. Daily, And yeah. then I also have to work on Saturdays a lot of the times. And then it just makes for, um, if, if anything, and I know anybody that's been listening to the podcast knows this, if one small thing gets off out of balance... It, 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 our weeks messed up. Yeah, especially as far when, as recording goes. Especially when it comes to recording. Yeah, for sure. It's the long hours. People need their beverages. <laughs> they do. They do. You got to truck them in there. Get them in there. Starbucks, Gatorade, give it to them. Yep. And we need these projects. We need these projects estimated mm-hmm. and built. That's right. And them. just all happening at one time. So my my workload has gone up significantly. So has Mike's. This isn't news to some of you guys, but we feel like, you know, in case anybody's wondering, we'd like to give you an update mm-hmm, and let yeah. you know kind of what's going on. It's just been, it has been hectic. It has been hectic, and I really hope it doesn't happen again, but it, it probably won't slow down for me until after Labor Day. Yeah, I'm going to get, I'm going to be going pretty hard until, yeah, at least, yeah, September. That's yeah. usually, that's usually kind of when it goes, and you know. I feel like it's a little bit okay, except for the, you know, the people that we, that we have that really love listening to the episodes every single week. But a lot of people just, especially in June, mm-hmm. kind of, as far as numbers go, podcast wise, everything kind of dips off. People are taking vacations yeah, and doing course. some different things like that. Good. I don't know what that feels like, but I will tell you <laughs> that I, I, I'm, I'm happy for all you guys. If yeah. you if you got to take a family vacation or you have one planned, it's def, definitely a good deal to get get in and relax and unwind and reset. Yeah. So yeah, we wanted to make sure we came back and we did something really interesting. I know that anybody in the, in the true crime game knows at least a working knowledge of the railroad killer. Yeah, I think so. Whenever I hear the term railroad killer, not only do I think of the actual person who did it, but a very good episode of criminal minds. Oh Yeah. There's a really good uh, episode that kind of goes about that. I'm not sure how close it is other than just what it's about. You know, a guy using the tracks to skip around, uh, you know, murder, yeah. burglary, Grand Theft Auto. A lot of parallels there, but as for like who was actually behind it in the episode, obviously very different. This guy is the guy we're talking about today. And Hel Resendez is a terrible, just a terrible monster. Yeah. I think I'm just going to refer to him as Resendez uh, yeah. because that's easier. His actual name is Angel Monterino Resendez. Also, it says that he's born uh, Angel Leoncio Reyes Resendez, and then he's got probably 20 other aliases right. that go along with that. And I think that's one of the things, especially when I was trying to research into this, is that depending on the author of the article or mm podcast or whatever you want to say 
if they used a different name, it's hard to kind of tie all of it back together. And really, I mean, we know we know the basics about him. And there was a good, I think it was like a maybe like a FBI files or like one of those, mm-hmm. you know, shows they used to do where it's got like the very serious commentator mm-hmm. where the guy goes and he's doing things of different things i think he's <laughs> he's been covered in several like uh shows yeah uh, especially and, and and i can't even begin to imagine how many podcasts i know i know one of the ones i listen to often is is morbid and i know they covered him mm-hmm. and they did a really good job um but, yeah absolutely yeah but uh we're gonna do it we we'll do, do it a little different we're gonna do a little different so what uh, uh we're gonna start by talking about the person and then we're gonna move into um, like his crimes and his pathology, like, and then, uh, see where it goes from there. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of those deals, like we kind of like to do it different. And, and I think that if you, if you have, if you've looked into any of the information that he, or any of the, the case information, as far as it goes, or if you've heard something about it, you probably have a good understanding about what he is generally that that he was about and how he did it. So we want to break it down in a little bit of a different way. Because I know the ba- basic breakdown of most podcasts is talk about each case and kind of give the details of the case, telling a story. Mm-hmm. And we like to tell stories, but we also like to do it with our background in, in there. So it'll be just a little bit different, but it also brings kind of a new kick to it, in my opinion. So I think it does too. So if you've already heard this case before, stick around because we might have a little bit different insight as far as the details go or what our opinions are uh, about the case. So we'll go ahead and jump into it. So Resendez was born on August 1st, 1960, and I've also heard it as 1959. And I think that's kind of a I mean, it's only one year difference, but when you're talking about Resendez in gen- you know, in general, he was born in Mexico when he was, when he made it into the United States, as we discussed, he was using different aliases, different date of births, different, you know, all different types of information for the purpose of not trying not to get in trouble for different things. Right. But so when you, when you're looking at stuff like this, if you, if you've heard something about it and you're like, man, that doesn't sound right. Just know there's a lot of room for error in this case because not only was he a serial killer Mm -hmm. and he had a lot of aliases and he traveled in a way that was, is not common in most cases. And it's kind of hard to to nail it down to actually who he is. It gives a lot of room for error. Oh man. And a lot of room for interpretation that could be presented as fact. Cross information. And, And I can tell you when I look at that birth date, all I see is when you put it on paper, seven i'm sorry eight one of 60 you know in my experience a lot of people uh, a lot of uh, immigrants and uh, illegal aliens will often use like a just a month number and the first of it yep because in a lot of countries i'm not saying this is accurate i'm just saying i've experienced this they don't know the day so they just have the month so here in america we know the month and the day but a lot of a lot of other countries and all of the peoples don't. It's just like when was he born? He was born in August, yeah, nineteen sixty. And they're like, well, what day? They're like, I don't know. Well, you have to have a day. Pick the first then. So that's what I see. So whether yeah. it's nineteen fifty nine or sixty, it's eight one sixty. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to point out when I worked in the sheriff's office in the jail, we had a contract with ICE or the Immigration Service. Mm-hmm to house people that were kind of in transport between different areas. And I was surprised to see not, not just only um, people who had immigrated from Mexico, Central America, South America, but anywhere specifically around the world that a lot of them did not know their birthdays because it was not as significant as it is to us. And so I booked in a lot of people that's that their birthday was January 1st. Yep. One, one of whatever year approximately they thought they were born. Yes. Very similar. And a lot of like the uh, Middle Eastern and like African immigrants mm-hmm. that come here to Amarillo, you run into that a lot. Yeah. One, one. Yeah. Cause yep. we, yeah. If you come across them in any sort of your police investigations, you had to identify them. They had an ID card or something on there. You'd look and you're like, man, that's all these guys have the same birthday. Right. Yeah, it's because they didn't know what their birthday was. Mm hmm. 
And so, yeah, that's a good point. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, that you brought that up. But so he was born in August of 1960 ish in, uh, de Matamoros, Puebla, Mexico. Mm hmm. And he, so he, his early life is there. We do have some details about it. I don't know how much of it is, is more of hearsay. And I think that you hear some kind of things. And, and most of the time when, when you have investigations like this into a certain person, you're going to get field reports from officers that have talked to families. And this is how this information is kind of trickled down. Right. And I know that people have written books about him and things like that. And I'm sure that he gave interviews and it would be, you know, so it's, it's basically kind of we're gathering this information from secondhand, thirdhand uh, situations. But from, from what we understand about him in his early life, he had several events where there could possibly had been head trauma in a young age. Yeah, several. Yeah, more specifically, uh, they talk about that moments not days, not weeks, not months, but moments after he was born, he was someone accidentally dropped him on his head. Mm, devastating. And then we have a, another incident where when he was around three years old, it said that he fell off of a building. Um, I don't know. I know some of us, like when I thought to this, I, I immediately go to like out in the country and he fell off the side of a barn or something. I yeah. don't know why in my head I do that. But we also have to think of the landscape of where he lives. They could have been in a kind of multi-storied area, right? some sort of flat type area, yeah. and he could have just fallen off the side of it, you know, in some sort of structure that they might have lived in. Because in my head, this is hard for me to get to a situation where there would be a three-year-old child hanging out on top of a building. Well, you just don't know. No railing. Yeah. Pushed. Who knows? Yeah, you got to you got to think of living conditions of where he might have been at and also supervision lack thereof. Mm -hmm. And so there's that that's two of the ones that we have at this time. But you also have to consider based off of some of the other cases that we have looked into and you guys have probably listened to that head trauma seems to play into a lot of serial killer type situations or someone that has some sort of traumatic event that triggers something that causes them to do something absolutely wild. Right, yeah. The, Killing it, spree or, you know, something like that. Head trauma that causes some type of defect and creates a pathology that just gets weirder and weirder over time, resulting in murder, sexual assault, burglary, somebody that doesn't see right and wrong the way we perceive it as normal. Yeah, and from everything that I've read on, like a lot of the cases that I've looked into, we've looked into, and that I've just heard about in general, it seems like the psychology on it is split mm -hmm. to where you have situations where some psychologists would say that it is definitely a factor, and then you have others that would say, I guess it depends on the situation, or no, it, mm -hmm. doesn't, it doesn't matter. So it's kind of hard, especially when you're, trying to figure out if someone is competent to stand trial or if there's any sort of situation that might, you know, that for as far as court cases go, you know, that we might want to consider. I feel like it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You have one side that rushes to say that it would be and one side that would say it wouldn't be. And depending on what the case is, that would give you which side, you know, his, right. his defense in this case is probably going to say absolutely. And then the DA is going to be like, nah, nah, because we got to, we got to get this guy. Yeah. And as far as like, de like developing serial killer pathology, he gets it in, in two different areas. Cause not only did he have significant head trauma as, as a newborn toddler, but also he went to live with his uncle when he was around six years old. Correct. And he was abusive physically and sexually. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the things that they say about his uncle and I believe it was his mother's brother because he did not have any contact with his with his father. Mm -hmm. I think his father was absent. And so that could also play into absent father could also play into that as well as the fact that he was sent to. And I think that in the beginning, the way that I looked at it as is that his mother was trying to possibly look at because they don't know why he was sent to live with his uncle but mm -hmm. if you look at some different like different cultures and different things 
sometimes this will happen because they want another male mm-hmm. to teach this young boy how to be a man, right? You know, to to say, and yeah, so that could have been. It's an old fashioned statement, but I mean, it it still exists. Yeah, and it and it and it is something, especially like when I was looking at it, I was like that that is something that was thrown around, and I started thinking about it, and I was like, well. I mean, at six years old, I don't know if he was just already a troublemaker or, you know, maybe his mom was like, you need to go live with your uncle so that he can, you know, that he, he can show you how you're supposed to behave. Mm-hmm. Or maybe she had multiple other children. She couldn't care for him. You know, who knows? But right. I do know that when he was around six years old, he was sent to live with his uncle. And there are multiple sources that say that, like you, like you mentioned, Mike, not only was he physically abusive, but he was sexually abusive, and he and his friends were also sexually abusive mm-hmm. towards Resendez. And so if we are thinking about a six-year-old child in a situation where he's being sexually assaulted by multiple individuals, and these are individuals, or at least, at the very least, an individual that is supposed to be caring for him, right? what sort of what sort of damage this could do to a child. And because this is supposed to be his protector, right? The person that's supposed to be keeping him safe. Yeah. And we're talking about a child. So you, you only know what you know at this age. And you know, like this guy's supposed to be looking out for me. So what is, what does he view as normal? Yeah. I mean, when I'm hearing about all this, when I'm reading about it, all I'm seeing now that we know the monster he grew up to be, you're just seeing a recipe just brewing just every incident until he is late teens and adult is just one after another, a reason that you could make a monster. Yeah. Like the recipe Mm -hmm. to make a monster is in full effect while this guy is growing up. And I know that he turns into a person that we all would hate. But the reason that I bring this up is because I think it's, you know, it's at least it's something to throw into the conversation about maybe why people do what they do, mm-hmm. even though it's uncomfortable to talk about or it's uncomfortable to think about, or, uh, you know, you could be thinking to yourself, like, I'm not really worried about what happened to him when he's a kid because he, he's an absolute monster. Sure. But, you know, yeah. we, we like to maybe kind of look at it from a different approach, but mm-hmm. when he was 11 years old, at one point he ran away from his uncle's house, which I can understand why. Yeah. And he was living on the streets for a little while. He was trying to do his own thing. But they bring up the, the, the fact that he was attacked by another group of boys at, while he was living on the streets. And they beat him up and they hit him in the head with bricks. Golly. So we have another mm-hmm. RA. So from, from birth now up to age 11, where we have three maybe traumatic brain injury type or at least brain injury type situations that yeah. could have happened. And it, it, at this point, when he's starting to get into his teens, because when he's, you know, from 11 to 16, we know that he's kind of on again, off again with living with his uncle, perhaps different relatives. But he is, for the most part, he is living on the streets. He's trying to right. make his own way. And this is where I think that in his, in his predicament that he's in at this time, He's probably starting to, at this time, engage in, you know, criminal activities. Oh, yeah. Petty theft or things that, and a lot of times, and you see this even in the United States, specifically and anywhere across the world, if you have any sort of organized criminal activity going on as far as gangs or things like that, they like to use younger kids because you, you you don't think about them being criminals. Mm-hmm. So you have them do certain things for you. Right. It kind of brings them into the fold. Yeah. Teach them, teach them how to live on the mean streets. Yeah. You have them, have them run errands for you, do things for you. Mine's, uh, mine's for molding. You're creating a soldier. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Somebody that you can get to do your bidding. They won't question it because you were there to provide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, so I, I believe honestly that this is the time that, uh, Resendez is starting to kind of mold what would become his MO later on down the road. Like right. he is, he is going to progress in his criminal activity. Like we've seen numerous times, mm-hmm. every time, he, you know, the escalation is going to continue to the point of murder. And it kind of, when he decides that 
he's going to come to Texas. This is where he, I think he still maybe engages kind of in the, in the petty theft and the, in the, in the lower level crimes. But he, at 16, he leaves Mexico and he comes to Texas and they believe that it was by way of train. And this is going to be something that is going to be a trial and error for Resendez basically for the rest of his life until he is later captured, but something that he is not very good at and then becomes really good at. Proficient. Yeah, very proficient. He knows, you know, exactly what to do to not only board, we can only assume at some points moving trains. Yep. Um, how to avoid detec- moving. Yep. how to avoid detection, mm-hmm. crossing borders, not just international borders. I'm sorry, not just like uh like country borders, mm-hmm. but also state borders, just over and over. He travels all around the nation. Yeah. He and, goes everywhere. Yeah, and it becomes even up into Canada. Yeah. I mean, he goes on to be a very prolific threat in the nineties, something that people would use to you just saying it would strike fear to the name, you know, the railroad killer which we'll learn will quickly become his, his MO, but it's a free way to get around. Yeah. And think about in the previous episodes, Mike and I have, have done where we talk about certain instances in our careers where we, where that involves a train mm-hmm. or train tracks. We're talking about a lot of moving trains and someone who became proficient in using this system. And in the beginning, that is what helped him basically be a ghost yeah. moving around you can't track somebody on a railway system that they're not even supposed to be on. That's right. And with the amount of trains that are passing through a certain area that could be going anywhere in the United States or outside of the United States. But I think one thing that's important is that from the time he was about 16 to 20, he is kind of going in between Mexico and Texas. And he is, he is arrested by by ICE or immigration or whatever you want to call it, whatever the acronym is for the for the current time. Mm-hmm. INS, I believe, was probably what oh, it was yeah. back immigration then. Immigration and Naturalization yeah. Service. Yeah, but he 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 gets arrested by them just dozens of times. Yes, and, and is deported. Yeah, it, and they think that they're at the time they feel like they're doing the right thing, but he's giving different names, he's giving different date of births. Um, probably doesn't speak very great English. Right. And so they don't know any better. They send him back to Mexico. Uh, I don't know how that process goes once he gets in Mexico, but he gets back out on the street and he's doing the same thing right back into America. Yeah. And I hate to use this term because I think it's been politicized, but like literally like the catch and release type deal mm-hmm. is is kind of, especially in the 90s. And even when when I was new into law enforcement, we have to understand that we live in a very technological world. Everything's kind of tech savvy, everything. But in the 90s, especially. It was just emerging. Yeah, it's 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 not as well tied together as it is today. And even today, we've noticed in a lot of different cases that things slip through the cracks or there's oh, yeah. clerical errors, as we said. Oh, yeah. And so when he is when he is caught by a, let's just say, a agency a sheriff's office, a police department, things like that. They realize that he's not a United States citizen. They're going to book him in, but I can guarantee you that they do not care mm-hmm. about what he says his name is or how old he is or any information about him. I would assume that most places might have fingerprinted him, mm-hmm. but maybe not. But yeah. even back then, it's all going to be on cards. It's going right. to be fingerprint cards. And so when when I used to uh, fingerprint people Back when, back as the the digital system was coming up, yeah, you would do, you know, you do a copy for the sheriff's office, you do a copy for TCIC, like the Texas Crime Information, and then you mm-hmm. do one for a national, so you could do up to three sets of prints, right? But when when it moved to like an Identex machine, where we started doing fingerprints like that, when you hit save or send, it just automatically sends it to all these different places, right. and you know, it's it's a it's a better system, assuming that you do it correctly. Right. Yeah. And it, I mean, all the different places he was caught because it was almost never the same spot. Right. He was traveling all over different agents and they're not seeing, 
they're just seeing somebody who's a number, but every time it was a different number because they don't know who this person is. Mm -hmm. And we'll even see as we go on further in the investigations that link him to all his victims, it's never done with anything digital. It's all, it's all legwork. It's fingerprints, palm prints, things like that, that they had to re look into it to find this database. And he'd become so prolific. They were taking these specific incidences and saying, hey, this could be him. See if it checks out with that. Instead yeah. of just putting him into a computer system, seeing his prints and then all his... And then getting hits on right, all of yeah. them, yeah. No, that didn't exist yet. That was that was something that was still emerging at this yeah, time. They so. were going to different agencies saying, do you have anything that kind of fits this MO? Right. They're like, uh, yeah, we might have something, especially close to railroad tracks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Check these fingerprints against what you have on file. If, right. you, if, if you lifted a fingerprint or a palm print or a something and they look back, they're like, that is a match. And yep. then everybody's kind of start to go, ooh. So then you have to think to yourself, how many different agencies do you have involved in this mm -hmm. different operation? And then the more agencies you involve, the bigger the you know, the bigger opportunity for confusion or, you know, someone saying that they're gonna take lead on it and someone saying, Oh, this is my backyard, what you know, whatever oh, you sure, can think sure. of. Yeah. You know, hoping that these uh, police agencies work together, but and they did. I mean, they did for the most part to get him where he needed to be at. But the, the point of all that was to say that in the beginning, there were, there were nothing connecting the dots. Nothing. No. And so because he was able to give different aliases, it didn't matter that they were tied to a certain set of fingerprints. If they weren't going to the right places or a specific agency didn't have something to match them against. Right. And so yeah. you really have to, you really have to think to yourself, like how, how difficult in the beginning it would be to tie this together. But then after it was kind of, kind of threaded together, how easy it would seem to be like, well, man, well, yeah, of course, all this makes sense, mm -hmm. you know, but in the beginning, it's not, it's not going to be that way. So in his early teens, you know, he's 16, 17, 18 years old. He's cruising around. He is what, what we've been told is that he does, different types of migrant work when he comes to mm -hmm. Texas. He works on farms. He does different things like that. But he's also definitely keeping up in his criminal element, and he's also mastering the railways. Yes. Every time he gets caught, it would appear to me that he learns something mm -hmm. from that to where he can get to the point where he's like, oh, man, okay, I have to take these certain types of trains. I have to hide here. I have to go at this time. I have to use this path. I have to do something like he's figuring it out as he goes. Every time he gets busted and he gets sent back to Mexico, he comes up with a new plan and it seems to work a little better every time until right. he actually gets it nailed down. And then when he comes to on one of his trips to the United States, he's over here, quote unquote, working. There's no telling what he's actually doing. And it 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 would it's easy for me to speculate but he ends up, this is 1980. Yeah. So he would be about 20-ish years old. Yes. Depend, you know, depending on what date that you use. But he he assaults an 88-year-old man and almost beats him to death in an attempt to rob him mm -hmm. of his, uh, of whatever, whatever he has on him. And to me, I think that this, at this point right here where he's caught in this assault, this is in tow, like in line with his progression as a, as a criminal. Right. From the petty theft situation, because theft is one of his MOs. Mm -hmm. So I believe that's why, that's why I've said petty theft several times, but I believe that he is looking for easy ways to get cash. That's right. Or get things that he can get cash for. Mm -hmm. And so he's kind of bouncing around and he is actually caught because as we're going to see, I feel like there's a lot of scenarios where guys like this could have so many unsolved incidences, not just murder, but, you know, there is sexual assault involved in this. Mm -hmm. And and I forgot to mention that in, in, the, in the front of the episode, but yeah, we're talking about a guy that sexually assaults women. Mm -hmm. He sexually assaults elderly women. That's right. He murders elderly people, mm -hmm. but there, he's not just in that one area. It, he murders men. He murders women. Yeah. Some are young, some are old. It, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, it's kind of a mixed bag as far as what his, 
what the the person that he targets but as we're gonna see it's more like mike and i talked about before the show it's not based on the person per se it's based on the opportunity right he's a very opportunistic predator and what their vulnerabilities are mm -hmm. and that's the thing that he seizes on the opportunity and the vulnerabilities not specifically the person he's not targeting just elderly people mm -hmm. or just young people or just women or something like that we see a lot in other cases where mm -hmm. they they go after a target because that's where they feel most comfortable where with him he had a system in place where he felt comfortable in other people's kind of vulnerabilities and 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 so we'll kind of see some of that unfold but anyways in this first one 1980 he's going to go in and he is going to be arrested for assaulting this 88 year old man and if i'm if i if I remember correctly, this elderly man dies later on. Right. Yeah. After it was all said and done. But yeah, I don't believe that they linked whatever his death was to this incident or they chose not to do that. Right. Just because they had him probably on ag assault anyways. And so he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. And it would seem like that is a good deal. However, yeah. But wait, but wait, at year five in his sentence, year five of his 20 year sentence, he is paroled and he is shipped back to Mexico. Yeah, he's paroled. And that was in Texas, right? Right. And then deported back to Mexico. And y'all can guess what's fixing to happen. That's not going to hold him there at all. Mm -mm. He's already he's already seasoned right now. He's already had years of experience riding the rails and it's not like when you get deported they you know take you back and drop you off at your mom's house no like you go to a deportation center there's a central area where they, where they will take you depending on what location you're in that is where you will be dropped off at mm -hmm. and it's uh, sometimes it's by bus sometimes it's by airplane it just depends and once he gets back to mexico it's not like the the authorities in Mexico were like, hey, did you illegally cross into the United States? Now you're in trouble with us, buddy. They're like, they drop him off and they're like, see you later. Yep, see you. Get on out of here. Mm -hmm. And he immediately goes from there. And they said within days is what days, they think yeah. of him being released from prison, deported back to Mexico. Mm -hmm. Within days, he was back in Texas Yep, already. And this is where you're going to kind of start seeing that, you know, that we, we can we can kind of call it like maybe a breakdown as far as as the as the system goes. But, you know, this is one of those things where it's we only know what we know. Yeah, because, I mean, he has no problem living like a vagrant and, you know, stealing, you know, ripping people off, just taking what he needs. This is how he's learned to survive. And now he has a taste for assaulting people to get what he wants because that's easy. Mm -hmm. 80 year old man. That's an easy target. So now he knows that if somebody has something he wants and there's nobody around to catch him, he can take it. Yeah. Cause he's, he's not a very big man, but he's, it's that opportunity again. Yeah. Not a, not a, not a big man in stature at all. I think he was only like uh five, six or five, eight, something like that. Yeah. He was, he was a smaller, smaller guy. Uh, I guess you could say, especially because of the way that he attacked his victims. But before we get into that and 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 kind of get into some of the the crimes that he's going to start committing, I think it's also important to point out that way we can kind of front load this whole deal. It's it's also important to po point out that in between his his crimes, you know, the murders, the assaults, the sexual assaults, the robberies, all the things that you can think of. Resendez lived when he was in Mexico yeah. as an adult, a normal life. That's right. He had every, every, it was, it was the, he, he had two very different personalities. Right. <clears throat> and, and he, and a lot of people that knew him were shocked to find out the things about him. Right. Cause he was considered like gentle and like calm and reserved. He even had, he even had a spouse. Yeah. He had a spouse and he had a daughter. I believe he had a daughter and they said that he was uh, very calm, very gentle towards others, that he was not aggressive, that he really cared for his daughter. 
he had a good relationship with his wife, his wife. And I know, I know that on, on other things, other, a few other podcasts that I've heard on this, this specific topic, they talked about specifically, how did his wife not know that right. he was out there doing some of these things? I think that says, that speaks specifically to the pathology of a serial killer, which is why he's listed as one, not just because of his body count, but because of the way he did it at home, what we're talking about right now, he was normal. That's something that you almost hear every time someone talks about yeah. a serial killer. He was, they, you have two halves to this person. When he's going out and providing, because obviously he had to have provided for this family. Yep. And he did well enough that they still spoke well about him. But that other side, how he was providing, that's where the monster came out. Yeah. That's where he was looking at, at these people that become his victims as a tool to get him what he needed. So he didn't care about hurting anyone because when he wasn't home, he was the railroad killer. At home, he was, you know, Angel Resendez. Yeah. But did two very different things. And so jumping on that, jumping on that train, crossing that border into America and stock and looking for victims, he's not the same person. No, because it was, it was one of those things where when you, when you talk about his wife, I know that, when, whenever the Mexican authorities were speaking to her, kind of when all of this comes about, um, she does talk about that he would give her gifts of jewelry and things that he didn't think, that, that she didn't think possibly they could afford, but she wasn't really sure where he got it from. She was also uh, happy to accept the gifts mm -hmm. and didn't really ask a whole lot of questions. And yeah, that might seem like she was possibly looking the other way but also i think that if you know she's in a situation where she's not she's not asking questions but she is accepting of the gifts and they know that he does have uh like ag agricultural skills mm -hmm. and every time he leaves and he says that he's going to work on the farms mm -hmm. he is sending them money right he is doing things to provide for his family so if you're in a situation where you may not have a whole lot of money or you may not uh you may not have any luxuries that we would not even probably consider luxuries right uh, in the United States but uh I'm I'm guessing maybe she didn't want to ask a whole lot of questions. No, I and it speaks a lot to like um what I would probably consider like old-fashioned and normal. Yeah. This is still the 80s and in Mexico I'm not from there, so I don't know. I'm just, I'm just speculating that she, he was providing. Yep. That's what the man does. Mm -hmm. And she stays home and makes house and takes care of the children. And he brings her things. What I don't see, I can see that she would see that, that she just sees that as normalcy. He's yeah. going out and working and providing for the family. She's not going to ask any questions. That's not her place. Yeah. And also we have to think that if she would have, been receiving like extravagant jewelry yeah she is also in mexico mm -hmm. so that would also make a, a danger to her so when i when i heard about this i was thinking to myself that the jewelry and the things that she was receiving may have been not something they could afford but also not extravagant mm -hmm. like we're thinking like she got some huge diamond ring yeah that you know she was flaunting around town of no she probably would have got killed if she would have had something like that yeah. it's not something that we're, I think we're looking at it in a way that it like we're looking into it a little bit too hard for it to be actually something I feel like is that she knew that he was doing. Yeah, the I things. don't I don't think so. I, I see that type of dichotomy. He was a husband and father uh, at home. But as soon as he went, he went north into America. He was entirely different because he was looking at it as this is what I have to do. This is what I've this is how I've trained myself to provide. And obviously he's a monster and psychotic in a way. He probably enjoyed it. There's a lot of power in that. Mm -hmm. And something else I want to point out before we get into talking about like his his victims and so forth. It's not like he was a weirdo and a loner. He had to have some social skills because as we'll see, some of his earlier victims are people that he associated with. Yeah. Whether that was long-term or not is irrelevant. He was able to talk to people, 
to make connections. So that part of him wasn't missing. Yeah, people in the kind of transient home, homeless community, mm -hmm. he had relationships with these people. He would stay in areas with these people. He would, you know, hang out in shelters with them. He would go around with them. He'd hang out, you know. Mm -hmm. These were people that, like you said, he associated with. So he had, he had those, he definitely had some sort of skills like that. And as you mentioned, not a loner. And then it just, it, it, it's crazy to me to think that, as you mentioned earlier, everybody that he knew from his hometown spoke so well of him. Mm -hmm. and so that's why we're kind of drive this point across that, yes, it is absolutely possible for this man to be perceived one way, but then act a completely different way when he is somewhere else. Because when he's home, he is loving, caring, he's hardworking, he's looking out for his family. Mm -hmm. Like you said, when he hits the track and goes north, he is a completely different man. And he is a monster. Mm -hmm. So as Mike was talking about a second ago, some of the people that, uh, that were some of his first victims and what we have, what we have to realize, I think in this situation is some of these first victims that we know about, we only know about after he was, after he was captured. Right. Yeah. And, and as we're, as we're, as we're getting started, we only have 16 known victims. Yeah. And by known that he says that he's responsible for or that evidence has linked him to there could be do, there could be many more but i think the number is 23 yeah that they they think they could associate with him right but it, it could it could be even higher we just don't know in fact his first victim is unidentified yeah first two yeah they i believe they were together they man and woman identified unidentified mm -hmm. these were these were people that were that he hung out with um in you know they were all homeless and kind of vagrants vagrants yeah mm -hmm. and he gets into so we know from 1980 is whenever whenever he's arrested for the ag assault against the elderly gentleman that uh, he got the 20 year sentence on mm -hmm. now from 1980 to 1986 we don't hear anything about him and so in my opinion we don't hear anything about him because we just don't know well he's in prison for five of those years yeah yeah, so, yeah. So he's getting out in sometime in 85. And then he's so, turning around. And then so he gets right back to it. Yeah. I mean, the, the date is an unknown date in 1986. This is when these first victims are found. And I believe it's Bexar County. Bear County. Yeah. So it looks is like. That, yeah. It how looks, do you pronounce that? Bear. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know. A lot. Don't don't feel bad because you're not a native Texan. No, I'm not. But common mistake in Texas. And people do this all the time. I did it myself. The reason I know this is because I was talking to some Bear County deputies one time that came to Amarillo to pick no somebody up. Well, I'm and glad you're here. I'd have messed that up the whole time. Yeah, San Antonio. It's San Antonio, Texas is Bear County. Wow. But it's it's spelled B-E-X-A-R. Wow. So the X is silent. It makes absolutely no sense. I'm not even going to get started on that. Let's continue. Yeah, whatsoever. <laughs> so they're, they're, it, the first victims that he takes credit for is in Bear County or San Antonio. And this is when he is kind of in that. And, and as we talked about a second ago, he he's in prison, he gets out and then he's back to his, he's back to the things that he is used to doing. And in this escalation, I feel like the one thing that Resendez made the connection between from when he got caught to when he runs across these folks is that he left a witness. That's right. He left someone that could identify him and he got in trouble for it. So he's evolving, right. he's learning, mm -hmm. he's picking up on these things. And that's where I think he, in my opinion, even though he is, he's got these things that happened to him when a child, when he was a child and everything, but he is of at least sound mind enough to know. Oh yeah. To learn, to learn, to adapt to his, to adapt to what he wants to accomplish. Right. And leave the least amount of witnesses that he can. And we'll get into that. We'll get into that later because I know, I mean, technically he, he's listed as only having one survivor, but I guess this old man, this older man, he kind of counts as a survivor, but he wasn't really into the, the, uh, he wasn't on his killing spree yet mm -mm. that that we know. So basically what happens in this first one, we're going to San Antonio and the unidentified woman and the unidentified man 
who were in this vagrant community, he had a he had some sort of friendship or he was acquaintances with them. Yeah. He, you know, however you want to look at that, they'd probably been hanging out for a little bit. But the weird thing that gets me is that no one knows who these people are. But for some reason in this homeless community, somebody had a weapon, which is not not hard to get. Yeah, a thirty-eight a revolver, I believe. Yeah, and they they took a a motorcycle trip together. Uh, these people and uh, or, or the the female and Resendez, and they were going out to this old farmhouse to do some target practice. Is what the is what the story is. Now this could be not true mm-hmm. because we got the information from Resendez himself, but for some reason he they were going out to this farmhouse to go target practice, do some target practice. And while they were out there, he shot and killed this Jane Doe. And I'm sure he took whatever belongings that she had. I don't know, you know, to be honest, I don't know if that motorcycle was his or not. I mean, I, w- I would doubt it, but it would seem like there was some sort of motive there. Like they, he, he did it for the reason of taking the motorcycle or taking belongings that she had. Mm. She and her boyfriend showed Resendez something that he wanted. Right. That's it, what I believe too. Yeah. And, and he was going to take it. And so instead of taking her out there and beating her up, he used this 38 caliber uh, weapon and he shot her with it. Yeah. And it, yeah, he, this is him telling, recounting the events. He says he did it because she disrespected him. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's another thing that we forgot to bring up. He was oddly religious. Yes. And I don't mean in a way where he is on fire for Jesus. Mm-mm. I mean, in a way that he he says very strange things mm-hmm. and points them towards his religious views or say says that people are demonic mm-hmm. or... They were, you know, demons. They black magic. Black magic. Yeah. yeah, I remember that coming up in a couple of them where he he feels the presence of the devil or of uh, he feels he feels the presence of evil, and he wants to rid that evil from the world. Yeah. So the first victim, the female, he kills her because she disrespected him. The boyfriend that he kills sometime later. Yeah, he goes, so after he kills her, he goes back into town and finds him and kills him. Right, yeah, and I could only, I could only guess that it's because he knows that they were together. Yeah. And he kills him, and he's the first one, that he he says he does it because he thought he was involved in black magic. Yeah, and how he would know that is anybody's guess. That's right. But Mike pointed out something very important here. After he shot the female, he knows that, and this kind of in my head ties this back together that he is of sound mind, at least to know that he made a little bit of a mistake here, Mm -hmm. right? He probably acted in a way whenever he was out there, he looked at it as an opportunity. He acted on it and then he realized he's like, oh man, but when I show up back up in town Mm -hmm. and she's not with me, her boyfriend's going to know that she's not with me. So what am I going to say? Well, she, uh, she's gone, bro. Yeah, because he he on the greener on the greener pastures, man. She said she was she's she's heading out. Yep. The second she victim, don't love you no more. <laughs> she don't love <laughs> you no more. She's out. Uh, the second victim, he kills him and 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 dumps the body. So he was able to move the the body. Yeah. So I mean, did he have the motorcycle? Did he get another means of transportation? Yeah, that's uh that's one of the things that I was thinking about when they said that he had taken the body and dumped it in a river and between like San Antonio and Uvalde. And it's one of those things I'm thinking of. I'm like, it's very difficult to tie all of these things together mm-hmm. because if, if I remember correctly, the female's body at some point was recovered at yes. the farmhouse or the remains, but the, the males was never recovered. Right. This is just his claim that, yeah, that he dumped the body in a river because the man was involved in black magic. Mm-hmm. That had to be it. Yeah. Disrespect to black magic. Get you killed by him every time. Mm-hmm. He ain't putting up with that. Mm. And going back to his, going back to that, and like I mentioned, like he, he will make claims about things like that. And I think that 
for him is a it was a it was an easier way for him to explain why he did something absolutely but it not still making sense all all it has to do is make sense to him because he keeps on doing it yeah he's like listen guys you guys ever heard of black magic they're like "Mm," they're like it's a terrible thing Mm -hmm. okay and because he is so religious it gives him this authority to act in a way that some of us might think to ourselves is not it's not the best way to do it you know, not not murdering people. Yeah, you should try to refrain from that. Yeah, but we can uh, we can move on from that one. I think that it's it's important to to I think document that he's in prison. He gets out, and within a year, it could be less because we have unknown date mm-hmm. as as the time. We're not exactly sure when he was released in prison from prison, but we know that less than a year after he was released from prison. He's, he claims to have committed his first pair of murders. Mm-hmm. So after this, after this, these first two murders that he admits to later on, I mean, we're talking in 2001, he's admitting to these murders that yeah. took place in 1986. We have another five-year gap between the two first murders and then this, the, the pair, and then what would technically be his third murder or se- his second uh, account of what what happened but july 19th 1991 also in san antonio which i, I feel like it's kind of weird that they put bear county in one in san antonio and the other because it's technically the same place but uh i think it's because i would guess it's because they don't know all that this is just a claim this uh the is, third victim is is proven oh yeah 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 because they sense. had they had the body um i believe and we'll get into the details about that but he there's there's more to link this right. is just a claim, although they did find the remains of the unidentified woman. Right. Okay, so fast forward to July 19th, 1991. In my opinion, uh, I don't think anything slowed down for him in those no. five years. That's a that's a large gap for somebody who lives like this, with this type of, like, it with this type of mentality. Yeah. No, we don't have anything in there, but I would highly doubt that he went five whole years without hurting somebody or possibly killing somebody else. And I don't believe that he stayed in the San Antonio, Texas area, because oh. one of the things we do know about Resendez is, is that he moves around a lot Oh yeah, and he always goes home. Mm-hmm. So in five years, there's no telling where he was at, what he was doing. Right. I know he's probably going to say, oh yeah, I was doing some work. I was at home because he would go home for longer periods of time, not Mm -hmm. too long. No. Because then it would seem suspicious because I know a lot, like from where I'm from with migrant workers, a lot of them do go home during certain times of the year. Right. But it would be, it would be awkward or, or his story wouldn't match up as well as if he was still at home during the peak times of the year, Mm -hmm. especially for farming, agriculture, or things like that. I don't know what he did specifically in agriculture, but like, let's just say for instance, if it was cotton, right? It's, it's they're, they're stripping cotton. Mm -hmm. Then he would have to be in Texas at a certain time of the year. Mm -hmm. More specifically, like the bigger time is early fall Mm -hmm. and uh, not even early fall, like end of summer into early fall. Like you could start some areas in Texas might start in August. Some may be September. But you, then you're going to go on this run mm-hmm. where I know people in, that live in smaller towns or around areas like this, you always see the the module builder, like the modules, cotton mm-hmm. modules sitting out on the, you know, the farmland. And then right. the trucks are taking them to the cotton gins. And it like it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. These farmers are working from before sunup to past sundown for extended periods of time. They're helping their friends. They're going to different areas like it's a big time of the year. So I make that point to say that he could have gone home during this time, but he would have had to have left to to keep up this image that he was holding. And uh, I do not believe that he spent, even if he went home, he went back to just, he was in San Antonio, he'd go home, he'd come back to San Antonio, Mm -hmm. he'd go home. He was out traveling. Oh, yeah. He was out doing some, he's getting the miles. That's right. And uh, he was doing it, you know, on the railroad. So. I do think that that's why they they contribute, you know, up to 23 murders to him, mm-hmm. but they don't, it's not something that perhaps that he 
confess to. And I, I also wonder if there's some sort of uh, reason why he would confess to some but not others, because we know, I mean, with with the body count that he has, especially with some of them being in places like Texas, Florida, at this time, California still had the death penalty, mm-hmm. Kentucky, I mean, Georgia. Yeah. Like, you, you're going to get the death penalty anywhere. Yeah, especially <laughs> in several of those states at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know why he admitted to some, but not others. But either way, in July 19th, 1991, we're back in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. There's a five-year gap. We don't know what's happening with him. But he he meets a man, and this is one of those situations where he is going to come up with a a reason to have to kill him. Mm-hmm. Now, on this specific one, because I've I've looked into several of these, on this specific one, I don't remember the exact details of how they met or what they were doing, but I do know that they were at least friendly with each other enough to I, I was what I was trying to what I was trying to get to is I wasn't sure if this guy was a homeless man too. Yeah, I actually don't know the answer to that either. But I, I can't remember on this one exactly. But, but they're, they're associating enough that they end up at an abandoned downtown house in San Antonio where this incident takes place. Whether he lured him there or whether they were there by circumstance or maybe they were... I think they were there together. Mm-hmm. And, and I apologize for not having that, that specific information on this one. But yeah, and, and, it's, and it's, it's crazy because once again... In my opinion, I believe this man was lured because they're at an abandoned house. Mm-hmm. And who's going to be at an abandoned house? Only vagrants or nobody. Or nobody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who's going to be at this farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere? And it says farmhouse, but I'm sure we're talking about a South Texas out in the out uh, oh, yeah. city limits in the country of an abandoned farmhouse. Oh, yeah. You, you can drive around the panhandle and see dozens of them. Yeah. They're yeah. all they're all over the place and they're really cool to look at. But it, I, I want to say that they're at this abandoned house because for a specific reason. Mm-hmm. That is for Resendez to kill Michael White. Mm-hmm. Michael White's his name. Twenty two years old. Twenty two year old kid. So in my opinion, this would be a situation where once again Resendez saw something that Michael White had and he wanted to take it. Yep. And so he lures him to this abandoned house and he kills him he uh beats him to death with a brick uses a brick which something that has been done to him Mm -hmm. except he and and we'll see as things go on he uses blunt objects a lot and also whatever he has available to him again just very opportunistic yes Mm -hmm. very opportunistic he is hanging out with this guy he lures him to the house he looks down because he's not, I, we're, I'm going to make a, I'm going to say that he doesn't have the brick in his backpack. Mm-mm, no. He's at a abandoned house where there's probably already been vandalism, mm-hmm. where there's probably already been things that have happened there. Dilapidated. Yeah, exactly. You know. He sees the brick on the ground. The kid's like, yeah, he's hanging out. And he's like, hey, did you see that? Did you see over there? And a whack hits yep. him on the head. Yep. And then he uses that, that brick specifically states bludgeoned. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he whacked him in the head. He stole the kid's backpack or whatever, and then he rode off into the sunset. No, he stayed there to to make sure he was dead. He used this brick to beat this man in the head until he was dead, mm-hmm. and, which was probably a very gruesome crime scene. But when he later on confesses to this crime, he says that he had to kill him because uh, because Michael White was homosexual. Yeah, that that tells me two things. One. He's obviously a, a sick homophobe, but uh, that too, that he had to know him on a personal level because in the even in the early 90s, that was not something you were just sharing with somebody that you didn't know, at least to a certain degree. That's my guess. So right. he had to know Michael White enough to use that to target him. Now, I don't have any corroborating yeah, well, like, information. But it's 1991 in Texas. Yeah, and he's like, Maybe they're hanging out. They're getting. They they know each other somewhat. Who knows how long they've been associating? Maybe he says that. 
maybe he decided then he was going to do it or maybe he didn't, but they had to know each other enough that Michael White somehow either said something that alluded to that or that he told him straight up Mm -hmm. or maybe that they that was something that they shared and he felt bad about it after. Yeah. I mean, that was people have killed for that before in the world of true crime. Oh, yeah. And in a whole lot less. And so this the way that I was looking at this is that in the opportunity that he had, he found out about this. He because in the in the instance with the the homeless people that were unidentified, the black magic part of it is just something that he made up. Mm -hmm. Uh, In this situation, he might have felt like he was justified in doing this, perhaps based on his religious beliefs. Sure. Which would be incorrect. But we already know that he is oddly religious in a way that is like not annoying. It's scary. Mm-hmm. Like he he's going to murder people and then say it's based off his religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so if if he if if like you said, if he had this situation come up, he's like, well, here's my out right here. I can use this as a way to 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 justify me killing him. But it doesn't. I don't know. For for to me, it doesn't make sense as far as. Right. But what we do know is that Michael White's body is found. Right. And it's, and Resendez doesn't confess to it until for, until an, uh, 10 years later. Right. So I'm sure just added up. This was the first of his body count where his the remains were found. He didn't have to tell anybody about this. Somebody else already found it. And so there was a cold case, what would become a cold case until he confesses to it in 2001. Mm-hmm. Oh, and another thing I was going to bring up is that in in the beginning with Resendez and his victims, we are t- we are talking about people who are homeless, and then and then this next victim, someone who is who he claims is homosexual. But if you look at cases like um, that that guy that they called the Ice Man, mm-hmm. that was the hitman up in like the oh man, yeah, that for the mob and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but he. Even even the Iceman would say that he practiced killing people on homosexuals and homeless people. Right. Because he felt like the police were less inclined right. during these times. They were marginalized. Right. To, right. To, to investigate it like they didn't care as much about it. Mm-hmm. So nobody would look into it as much. I don't know if that's the situation here, but I mean, he had to admit to these 10 years later. Right. And or did. more, 10 and 15 years later and yeah. did. And no one ever even knew that he that he did it. But that also could be because of the community that he lived in, the way that he traveled around, you know, all of these different different situations, scenarios. But I just I thought I was just thinking about that while you're talking a second ago is that the two the first two were homeless. The second one was uh, accused of being or said to have been uh, gay. And then they both were unsolved. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, the majority of them were unsolved. But. I'm just saying, I wonder if that kind of played into his. Sure. I mean, anything is kind of MO in the beginning. Right. Anything for to justify it to himself, because that's the only opinion that he cares about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. And so moving forward. I hate to tell you guys this. (laughs) We're going to have to pick it up on the next episode. We're going to do a two parter. Yeah. And that's where we're going to leave off for this episode of the Railroad Killer. Yeah, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of different. uh we were going to try to cram it into one episode, but when when Mike and I were going kind of through the outline to see where we'd end up at, we just felt like it was either going to go one of two ways. We Ooh. could rush through it extremely fast, mm-hmm. or we could have a two, two and a half hour. By the time we ended up getting through this, and I looked down, and I'm like, hey, we're at two and a half hours. Yeah, we don't want to do that. So instead, we're going to turn it into a two-parter. So uh, schedules, of course, pending. We will be back at this uh, next Wednesday. Yeah, we and we'll finish up with the uh, railroad killer. Yeah, and I think I think we we looked at the schedule. Everything looks good as far as uh, the schedule goes. Um, of course, sometimes we have to change that on the fly. But mm-hmm. we, we when we started talking about this, one of the things we both agreed on was it it definitely wouldn't be good to rush through this one just because there's so many moving parts. Yeah, for real. There's so many victims. There's so many different things that are happening to to kind of go through this case. So we could have burned through it, but I felt like it would have been kind of like, hmm. Yeah. 
a missed opportunity. Yeah, that seemed like it was poorly put together. Right. We that's the one thing I know we both definitely do not want. Yeah. And that's why that's why if we get into a situation where we're at last minute, we don't do an episode. Mm-hmm. Because we would rather give you a good one than give you an episode just to have an episode that you're like, oh, that was terrible. Really dropped them all on that one. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's uh that's where we're going to leave it for this episode. Um, we thought that would be a good uh, stopping point. And then now that we all know the backstory of Resendez and kind of how he operates and the things that he's going to be doing next episode, we can just start with the next victim mm-hmm. and work our way through there all the way up to his eventual capture mm-hmm. uh, and conviction and kind of work through those details and then give you a kind of just an overview of kind of what we think yeah as far as all that goes mm, some opinions mm-hmm. whether they're good or not yeah good or bad mm-hmm. we'll give you a couple yeah so all right everybody well we are going to leave it there for this episode of the murder project thank you guys so much for tuning in and we will talk to you later bye, bye. thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the murder project our numbers are going up our downloads are going up and we have you guys to thank for that If you're looking for us on any of the social media platforms, you can find us on Facebook. We're at The Murder Project, or you can type in facebook.com slash podcast TMP. If you're looking for us on Instagram, we are at The Murder Project. And if you're looking for us on Twitter, we are at The Murder Pod. Also, don't forget, go over whatever platform you're listening on. Hit that like button. Hit the subscribe button if they have it. If you're listening on Spotify, hit that subscribe button. Hit that five stars. If you're listening on Apple Subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and hit that five stars, baby. Hit the five stars, slap them. Slap them, slap them. We thank everybody that has done that. We appreciate it so much. If you have a longer form question or comment, you can reach out to us by email. That email address is contact at themurderproject.com. And as always, Mike or myself will get back to you. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of The Murder Project. We look forward to speaking to you in the future. But before we go, please remember, head up, eyes up, and stay alive.